Praise the Lord. Glad that cross made a difference, isn't it? Made a difference in my life. I trust it made a difference in yours. Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to pretty much finish up our series on this issue, your reasonable service today. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to consider just the thought, you know, today of serving and, you know, the attitude of service. And again, uh, we're going to kind of rehash some things. We're going to just summarize, and then we'll go ahead and, and hit that running, all right? So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we read there in the passage, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. One more time. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Again, the apostle begins by stating some facts. He's saying, listen, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to uh, truly beseech you on the fact or on this thought of the mercies of God. I'm, I'm going to come to you based on that. And I'm going to tell you, listen, um, I, I want to make this request in light of what God has already done for you. So he spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans explaining the mercies of God, what God has done, the result of God's mercies in our lives. And he talks about justification and sanctification and glorification, and he deals with a number of other things that God has so blessed us with. And he says, now listen, I beseech ye, therefore, by the, uh, by the mercies of God, as I begin to share this request, as I begin to tell you what it is that I'm asking, I want you to reflect on what God has already done in your life. And so he moves on and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. And we spent time talking about that presenting oneself. And we noted how it was a personal call. It was a practical call. We said that it was a profitable call. In each case, in every case, it involved you and it involves me. We have to be willing to present ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to lay ourselves on that altar. We have to be willing to crucify our flesh and die to ourselves and allow ourselves to be placed on that altar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, everything that God has already done, go back and review. Go back and think about it. Go back and remember. And then, as a result, I want you now to lay yourself on that altar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. We learned that presenting oneself a living sacrifice inherently makes us holy and acceptable to God. Someone says, well, I don't believe that because you can present yourself to God, but you can, can what? 
Once you present yourself to God, if you're really on that altar, let me tell you, your heart and your desire is to please Him. Let me tell you something. You can't be on an altar yielding yourself wholeheartedly to God with these thoughts of, I'm just going to go out and live my life the way I choose. I'm just going to go out and serve myself. I'm just going to go out and sin. Just do what I want. No, that's not the attitude you'd have if you really presented yourself on the altar. The truth is, as we went through the Word of God, we saw a number of examples that support the supposition that once something is presented to God, once it is separated unto God for His specific use, that it is indeed inherently holy and acceptable to Him. We saw that with the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is God's day. It's a holy day. Why? Because it was given unto Him. It was separated unto Him, making it the holy Sabbath. We saw here there is holy oil spoken of in the Bible, holy vessels and a holy nation, a holy temple and a holy priesthood. And in every single case, they're holy in the sense that they have been set apart to sacred use, set apart to service and worship unto God. So as we separate ourselves unto God, as we present ourselves a living sacrifice, we are inherently holy and acceptable. It goes together. Notice, even in the passage, if you would take the time, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Listen, it runs right together. It's not like it's a separate thing. It all flows together there. And let me say that when you present your body, I present my body, we will be holy and acceptable to God. You say, well, he wouldn't want me. Yes, he will, if you'll just present yourself. Oh, he's not a respecter of persons, friend. He loves you the way you are, yes. He saved you in the state that you were in. But let me tell you something. He wants you now to present yourself. He did all that work to get you where you are. Let me say something. You've got to take a step now to get where he wants you. And that's on an altar. His altar. Presenting oneself, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And then we come to our passage today, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. God is not asking us to do something unreasonable by getting on that altar, presenting ourselves a living sacrifice. Now, again, I mean, it's a big difference getting on an altar in the Old Testament, getting on this New Testament altar. Back there in that Old Testament, they went on that altar, never came off that altar. They were dead sacrifices, but in the New Testament, we are living sacrifices. We die to self, yes, but we live unto God and we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here in the passage that it is our reasonable service. He said, I'm not asking you to do something that's unreasonable. I'm asking you to do something that's very reasonable. When you consider what I have already done on your behalf, when you think about all the things that I have extended to you and all the mercies and the grace that have been yours, then it's reasonable indeed. And so we come to this place today where we say, now, when we get to the place that we consider presenting ourselves a living sacrifice as being our reasonable service, then guess what? We're going to serve differently. And I'm going to tell you three ways you're going to serve. Three ways I will serve. If indeed we, don't, if we, if indeed we consider presenting ourselves a living sacrifice as our reasonable service. You say, I believe it's reasonable to present myself a living sacrifice, and I'm doing it. Let me tell you, these are the three ways that you will serve then, at least these three ways, okay? And so let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and I'm going to talk about the spirit of service today. The spirit of service. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership and your love. Bless us in these next moments. May the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, work in each life. May you do a work that, Father, only you can. 
Father, yes, you, you use the foolishness of preaching to, to see people come to Christ. But, Lord, it's your Holy Spirit that has to draw them. And it's your Holy Spirit that has to regenerate. It's, Father, you that does the real work. Oh, Father, let me now just simply be a mouthpiece. Bless your word as it goes forth. And may it, Father, penetrate the ears and the hearts of every listener. And may we, Father, be better for having heard. And, Lord, if there be any that are without Christ today, may they be saved. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but I've, I've been at this a couple of years. And I, honestly, I have watched people serve through the years. Now listen, for the most part, I must admit, at Community Baptist Temple, we have been so blessed to watch people serve with such a wonderful spirit. But let's face it, it's not always the case. There can be times where we have watched people that have served the Lord, supposedly, serve with a horrible spirit. A critical, a cynical, a negative spirit. Maybe they themselves just find themselves almost like it's drudgery. It's so difficult. It's such a burden to serve the Lord. i got to do this, and i got to do that, and I've got to do this. And, oh my, that's a terrible place to be. But when we come to the place... Well, we recognize that presenting ourselves a living sacrifice unto God, a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, when we come to the place where we realize that that is our reasonable service, then, my friend, I'm telling you, we will serve gratefully. We'll serve gratefully. Paul had beseeched them again. He had entreated them. He had implored the believers in Rome by the mercies of God. And we talked about that already. We already said how he, he spent 11 chapters, 11 chapters before he arrives at chapter 12 and says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. He says, go back and look at those 11 chapters. Don't you remember what I've already told you? How God has done such wonderful things, magnificent things. He would remind them how he, as both Gentiles and Jews, that they were deplorable. They were despicable sinners without Jesus Christ. Look if you would in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. And serving gratefully, we come to the place where we note our reason for serving and it's found in our gratitude for what God has done. I mean, why do I serve the Lord then? It's because of what He's already done for me. I, why do I love God? Because He first loved me. Why do I serve God? Because He first served me. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans there earlier, prior to chapter 12, and he says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. We're not talking about good in the sense of the world's good. We're not talking about in respect to, well, he was a nice person. He's a good person. Boy, she does such wonderful things and good things for other people. We're talking about good in relationship to God who is holy, perfect, and without sin. And he says, man, in comparison to God who is holy, righteous, perfect, and sinless, we have no good thing to offer him. We have nothing to bring into his presence. We have no reason that he would show us any kind of mercy. No reason at all. 
There's no way we can gain or access His favor. There's no way that we can earn His trust. No, we are simply sinners, the Bible says. I don't care if you're a Jew today. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile today. It doesn't matter what origin or what birth you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, what race you are. We're all sinners. Sinners at the root. And the Bible tells us here in Romans that, you know what, there's not one of us better than the next. We're all in the same boat. And he's telling these Romans, he's saying, listen, this is where you are. This is where you were at least. And he's saying, now, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God didn't leave them in that state. He said, I'm going to show you some mercy now. And in Romans 6.22, he says, but now being made free from sin. You were that wretched sinner. You were that deplorable wretch. But not anymore. Your sin has been washed away. You've been forgiven. Now you've been made free from sin, Romans 6, and 23, and become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, that's right. You go back and see who and what you were, but then realize what you are today as a result of the mercies of God. He could have cast you into a place called hell. He could have distanced you from himself. He could have made you go off into outer darkness, but he didn't do that. He heard your prayer and he heard your cry and he saved your soul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. And he says, you ought to serve gratefully. You ought to be thankful to serve. It ought to be a blessing to serve. He says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Wow, isn't that a wonderful truth? I mean, why do you serve? Why should we serve? Because we're grateful for what God has already done in our lives. And therefore, we ought to be serving gratefully. And that attitude in service, boy, if that's the case, it ought to be a grateful attitude then. When we meet people, when we talk to people, it ought to be clear, man, this guy is really thankful. This guy, this gal is really grateful. Look at how they're serving the Lord. Look at the spirit in which they serve. We serve gratefully as a result of what he's done, as we said already. And it'll affect our attitude. It'll affect our outlook. It'll affect how we are seen in the eyes of others even. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm grateful that the Lord did what he did for me. And because of that, I'm willing to serve him. But not only willing to serve him, but serve him with a grateful attitude. Somebody says, well, I'm willing to serve the Lord too, but I'm just not always happy about it. Well, because of what he did, you ought to be. Again, it's that mentality, you know, either I get to serve or I have to serve. Man, if you're truly grateful, if you've come to the place in your life where you have finally said to yourself, you know what? I, will, I understand the mercies of God in my life. I know that he could have simply said, you're through, you're finished, you're done. And he, instead, he gave me what I didn't deserve. Instead of giving me what I do deserve, he gave me what I didn't deserve. And you know what? I realize it's my reasonable service to present myself a living sacrifice. Man, I'm so grateful to serve you, Lord. And I'm, I'm grateful in that service. It's not just that I got to serve. I get to serve. So we see, first of all, that when we get to the place where we consider presenting ourselves a living sacrifice, 
as being reasonable service, it's then that we'll serve gratefully. But not only that, it's then that we will serve humbly. Humbly. Take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 17, would you please? Now just turn to chapter 17. We'll get to the passages in just a moment. Before we do, I'm going to set the stage for the passage just a little bit so we can kind of understand it and grasp the concept, what the Lord's trying to teach us in the midst of it all. But the Pharisees had on a number of occasions sought to trap the Lord. We know how they tricked and tried to trap him on a number of occasions. It was because of their unbelief and their envy. As a result of that, they plotted, they, they planned his demise. They were always trying to get Jesus to fall, always trying to make him look like a chump, always trying to make him look like a loser, always trying to make him look like he was a false prophet, make him look like he didn't know what he was talking about, that he was ignorant and stupid. Let me say something to you today, that that's exactly what the world will try to do with you when you stand on God's word. Oh, they don't know anything about true science. They don't know anything about what's really going on in the world. Look at them living off that Bible. That Bible's old and archaic, and their beliefs are so so archaic and so old-fashioned, and they, they don't even know what they're talking about. They're just such, they're so weak-minded. Okay. So they did to Jesus, so you're in good company. But in spite of all of that, Jesus for the most part, responded with an attitude of gentleness to these people. You ever read the Bible? I know there's been on a couple of occasions where Jesus was pretty stern, where he was pretty strict. And it was always with a religious group, by the way. It was never with just the truly sinner that was seeking. Never was Jesus harsh with a sinner that was seeking. But, but with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and some of the religious leaders, there were times that he would get a little bit harsh with them. But may I say that in most cases, he still was continually open to them in that regard. He was still had an attitude of gentleness. And, and, and on occasion, again, a rebuke. But on the other hand, he was perfectly willing to forgive if they had only shown the slightest sign of repentance. Even though they did, the Pharisees and others, fail to ask for forgiveness, Jesus was always ready and willing to forgive them. What an attitude. He was even willing to go to the cross and die for those very people who plotted against him, who planned against him, who sought his very demise. The Bible says in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says, Jesus is on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So then chapter 17 opens up. Jesus is now addressing forgiveness. Who better to address forgiveness than Jesus? I mean, being attacked by the Pharisees, always being questioned by the Sadducees. I mean, who better than Jesus to address this issue of forgiveness, seeing that he himself continues to forgive over and over and over and over and over again. So the disciples are watching this thing. They're listening to Jesus as he speaks about this aspect of forgiveness. And... um, Jesus is telling him, listen, you've got to be in a position where you're willing to forgive someone several times a day if need be. And the disciples, as they're listening, as they're watching this transpire and unfold before them, they sit there in complete astonishment. They respond by saying to him, finally, increase our faith. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of faith to forgive sometimes. Especially if it's over and over again. And so they say, increase our faith. 
Jesus would answer them. He'd say, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. Now, again, when you start thinking about this aspect of, of more faith, I mean, I don't know about you, but after hearing Jesus, I'm thinking especially now, I want more faith. Man, if I can pluck that tree up and throw it into the, the ocean or into the sea, man, that sounds good to me. Increase our faith. The Lord goes on to tell them, though, that they didn't need more faith. It's basically what he said, right? I mean, think about it. If you had faith, a grain of a mustard seed. You don't need all that faith to cast a, a, a tree on into the, the, the sea. That's not what we're seeking. That's not necessary. You just need the grain of a mustard seed. You don't need more faith. You just need to exercise the faith you have. See, he doesn't measure faith by bigness or littleness. That's not how faith is measured. What's needed is not so much a large faith as a living faith. You've got to live your faith. You've got to apply your faith. You've got to put it into practice. It's not, Lord, give me more faith. It's what little I have. Allow me to use it for you. Allow me to emphasize it. Let me to, to implement it in my life. And that's what he's basically teaching these disciples. See, the smallest amount of faith can accomplish miracles. It can accomplish miracles. You say, well, I want more faith. That's fine. But are you using the faith you already have? So the Lord brings this to a close by warning the disciples. He warns them because I think he's concerned about them getting somewhat arrogant or prideful. Maybe possibly even having some sense of conceit. Because, again, I mean, the thought of faith being exercised, the ability to do these miracles, the opportunity maybe to do the supernatural, man, that could really, if you're not careful, lead you to a place of pride and arrogance. And he didn't want it to go to their heads. And therefore he warns them. So he tells them a story. And that's where we arrive at Luke chapter 17, verse 7. Luke chapter 17, verse 7. Which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to me? Now, again, again, real simply, what's he saying? He's saying, okay, which of you, if you have a servant, you're paying this person, in a sense, to, to uh, do this work. And in this case, he's a servant. Uh, he's probably a bond slave at this point. And he's coming from the field, doing his duty in the field. And then when he hits the door, you say, ah, have a seat. Let me serve you. Is that what's going to happen? Of course not. That's not how it works. Notice he goes on to say, and will not rather say, not, you're not going to say, go sit down to meet. You're going to say, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken. And afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? What do you think? Of course not. He's doing what's required of him. He's doing his service. He's doing what's expected. He's doing his duty. You say, well, I don't like that. I think he should thank him. And yeah, whatever. How many times do you thank your wife? How many times do you thank your husband for going to work every day? 
Let me ask you something. You tell your kids to, to make their bed. In reality, why, why do you always have to thank them for making their bed if that's what they're supposed to do and that's how they contribute to the house? So I'm not opposed to thanking people, but I'm saying this. In the passage, what he's saying is if you're a bond slave or if you're a servant and you do what you've been required and expected to do, why is it that you need a, you're not going to get that pat on the back? You're just doing what you're supposed to do. And by the way, gentlemen, why is it that we think because we're faithful to our wives, we should get a pat on the back? You should just be faithful to your wife. And ladies, you should be faithful to your husbands, with or without a pat on the back. We don't need somebody to always tell us we're doing the good things when we're doing what we're expected to do, what's required of us, what's our duty. Now, again, we don't live in a society like that today. I was sitting in a Wendy's the other day, just yesterday, and, and, and I, I heard the manager get on the, the guys and gals in the back. And he got on him a little bit. I mean, he said, all right, let's go, guys. Enough. We've got to get this stuff done. We've got people coming in. It's lunchtime. And I thought, man, good for him. How many times you walk into one of these Burger Kings or one of these restaurants and these people are all in there yelling and screaming in the back, act like nobody's in charge? I thought, man, this guy's got it together. One of the workers was walking by me and he went on by this other fellow here and the fellow stopped him and he said, sir, I just want you to know that he wasn't being too mean. He really is a nice guy. And the guy goes, well, I just thought he was being a little bit harsh. I thought he was being disrespectful to you, to, to the workers. I wanted to stand up and go, I'm glad I'm not your kid. Because I'm going to tell you something, that kid's going to learn not to think the world's supposed to pat him on the back every time, treat him, coddle him, and wrap their arms around him and give him hugs all the time when they don't feel good. Let me tell you something, they're getting paid to do a job. They ought to do their job. And listen, I heard that guy, I heard that same manager say, hey, good job, people, way to go. Hey, he encouraged them too. They were stepping it up, doing a job. I, I seen both sides of it. I walked up to that manager and said, I just want you to know, this is a sharp place you're running here. He went, thank you, sir. Out the door I went. I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm sorry. I, I, just practically speaking, there are times, that you, you working at your job, do your job. Well, my boss doesn't appreciate me like he should. She doesn't appreciate me like she should. I get it. Whatever. Then find another job. But don't start slacking up and don't start acting like you deserve something. You're getting paid, aren't you? That's what you hired on to do. Again, I know that's not popular today because everybody's supposed to, oh, you're such a wonderful worker. Oh, you're a great associate. Oh, you're this, you're that. I get it. I get it. I get that's how it's supposed to work. But let me tell you something. The Lord's talking about some things here. Hey, you got a boss like that? You ought to thank God for him. But you shouldn't expect it. So that my boss does this for me all the time. And you go, my boss doesn't do anything. I hate my job. You ought to be glad you got one. And you ought to work your tail off. And maybe one day they will say thank you. And if they haven't, every time you get a paycheck, go, there's a thank you. This is great. Okay, so the preacher doesn't believe like half the world does. I get it. But most men are in darkness. See, I'm still in the light. But anyway, see, no eastern master in the day, in that day, in that day specifically, nobody in that day for sure would ever dream of allowing a servant to take priority over themselves. That wouldn't have happened in the day. Now, again, like I say, our days of times have changed somewhat. But in those days, that would have never, ever, ever happened. 
Nor would that servant expect that he would either, by the way. That servant would not take any credit for himself. He would he'd simply just do his duty. That's how it was. And he would not expect special consideration. He wouldn't expect any special treatment or reward for anything he did. He's just simply doing his duty. And you know what? When he comes back out of the fields, guess what? His duties still aren't done because after arriving home from the field, he now has to go into the household and do those duties as well. They demand his attention. He understands. This is my duty. And until his chores are completely finished, he can't expect to take care of his own needs. That's what the Lord's talking about here. His master's not going to go, Bravo! Bravo! Good job! That's, the master ain't going to do that, especially in that day. Now, if you got, you got a husband or wife that's encouraging you, and every time you do something, they say, This is wonderful. That's wonderful. You just, man, you thank your lucky stars. The day you start expecting it, though, is the day you're going to be very disappointed. Be careful about that. There's some things that we should do as husbands and as wives. There's things we should do as children. There's things we should do as employers, employees. And if you expect something, you may be sadly disappointed. These guys, I guarantee you that these servants did not expect anything. They especially didn't expect their masters to applaud them just because they did their duty in the field. Jesus then responds. Here's how Jesus responds. Look at verse 10. Here's how he responds. It's ain't me, it's him. Look what he said. So likewise ye. So likewise ye. He puts his finger back on those disciples now. And he says to them, now, I've talked to you about this this particular servant and how he's going to do his duty and how the master's not going to pat him on the back and how he's just expected to do what he's supposed to do. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. See, he's trying to express to us an attitude of service here. It's not that someone can't say thank you. It's not that someone can't pat you on the back. It's not that that's... He's just saying your attitude in service ought to be one of humility. See, the point is that the most outstanding servants of the Lord, when they've done all that is expected of them, have done no more than their duty at all. They've just done their duty. And in a sense, the truth is, is that really, in reality, we're not even needed. See, you've got to understand that the Lord could have chosen another means by which to fulfill His plan and purpose for the earth. He could have, he could have denied us the privilege and the opportunity to be a co-laborer in this work with Him. It is not something He owes us. He permits us. He gives us the privilege of coming alongside and serving with Him. And He's saying, that ought to be your attitude. He says, listen, your spiritual pride better not get beefed up or blown up or puffed up. Because the truth is, is that, first of all, I'm giving you the privilege of serving with me. And second, when you've done your duty, why don't you just consider it your duty instead of expecting someone else to lift you up? You do it with humility. You do it humbly. How's that translate today? 
we walk into the church and God gives us the privilege of teaching a class or running a bus or, or going out soul winning or, or uh, helping in the nurseries or doing the work we do. And we say, you know what? It's my privilege. Man, I, I'm just so thankful God will allow me the privilege of serving. I don't need a pat on the back. I don't need somebody to say good job. I don't need somebody to always affirm my need and and how important I am in this ministry. I just thank God that He allows me to serve Him. Serve humility with humility. And finally, we serve happily. When you get to the place where you can lay yourself on an altar, you lay yourself on that altar, and you say, you know what, that's my reasonable service. Sounds a little bit like that story that the Lord just told, doesn't it? We get to the place where we say this is our reasonable service, and all of a sudden we're going to serve gratefully. We're going to serve, as we just said, with humility, and we're going to serve happily. Happily. Now, 1 Kings chapter 10. We don't have much time, so turn there, and I'm just going to give you the, just the, the basics here real quick. Just real quick hit this. I, I don't have a lot of time to develop it. But First Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba has visited Solomon. Solomon, a, an amazing king, by the way. You know, you had Saul of Tarsus, and then, I mean, Saul, excuse me, not of Tarsus, you have, that's the wrong Saul. But you have Saul, and then you have King Saul, right? And then you have David who follows him. Then you have David's son Solomon. Solomon is the king by which all other kingdoms are judged, really, in a sense. David's the king, but his is the kingdom. See, when you see of a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign, it goes back to Solomon's reign. Now, when you think about a king by which all others are judged, it's David. But the kingdom is Solomon's. And so he has an amazing kingdom here. And so the Queen of Sheba comes. She's heard all these stories about how wise he is. What a tremendous leader he is. What, a, what an amazing king he is. And so she goes and meets him and she he tour, gives her a tour of his kingdom and of, his, of his, all of his wealth. And she sees so many wonderful things and she is just overwhelmed by all of it. Verse 6, and she said to the king, chapter 10, verse 6, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And I, and, and behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee. And that hear thy wisdom. Do you see how these servants are? Notice again, she says, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants. Notice, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. And here's all I want to say about this. If it could be said of Solomon's servants that they were happy. Happy in service to this earthly king. How much more should we be happy to serve who are the servants to the heavenly King Jesus. I mean, Jesus' wisdom and wealth far exceed any in all earthly kings and kingdoms, does it not? I mean, the passage tells us here simply that, that happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee. 
and that hear thy wisdom. Man, how much more wisdom does Jesus have than him? Matter of fact, do you realize that Jesus gave Solomon his wisdom? That we could go over to the book of Second Chronicles and we don't have time to do it. But it says, in the night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, ask what I shall give thee. You know what Solomon asked for? Wisdom and knowledge. Why? So that he could rule God's people. He said, this task is a daunting task. It's a difficult task. It's one that's beyond my personal abilities. But I need you to give me wisdom and knowledge, Lord, so that I can rule them well. And God said, you know what? You didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for fame. You didn't ask for long life. You just asked for things that would help you to be the kind of king you need to be to serve my people. Boy, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to not only give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you everything else you never asked for. And boy, I'll tell you what, the wisdom that he got was from God himself. So who in the world, I mean, who should be happy to serve their master more than us then? I mean, they were happy to serve Solomon because he was so wise and he was so good at what he did. And they thought, man, this is the best ever to stand here before him and to hear this wonderful man and the wisdom that he has. May I say that wisdom was from God. And we have the privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ who gave him that wisdom. And listen, Jesus isn't just a wealthy man. Jesus isn't just somebody that was a shrewd businessman. He created wealth. Not in that sense that he was shrewd. He created wealth and that he brought it from nothing. There was nothing and now there's something. That's called creation. And who do we get to serve? Jesus. And we ought to be so happy in service. When we get to the place where we can lay ourselves, present ourselves a living sacrifice, and we say, it's my reasonable service. It's reasonable. We will serve gratefully. We will serve humbly. And we will serve happily. But if we never put ourselves on that altar, let me tell you, sooner or later, we probably won't be serving gratefully anymore. Or humbly. Or happily. Because this flesh always wants somebody to tell it how great it is. This flesh always wants to be recognized for the Wonderful thing it is in our own eyes. And it ain't a whole lot, but we think it is sometimes. But when we get on that altar and we say, this is just my reasonable service, all of a sudden serving the Lord takes on a whole new light. May God help us to serve Him the way we ought to, with the right attitude, the right spirit of service. But it begins on an altar. It starts on an altar. Otherwise, service will become drudgery, a burden instead of a blessing. What about you tonight? Do you know Christ as your Savior? I mean, do you have a relationship with Him? Do you wake up in the morning and He's on your heart and He's in your mind? Do you go throughout the day thinking about Jesus? Do you go throughout the day talking to Him? Do you find yourself communing and fellowshipping with Him continually and constantly? Do you find yourself turning to Him in the midst of difficult questions or perplexing issues in your life? Do you find yourself just driving down the road and saying, get me safely to work? I mean, you're just engrossed with Jesus. Do you have that relationship you ought to have? Maybe you've been saved, but you don't have that kind of relationship. You ought to work on that relationship today. You need to lay yourself, present yourself on an altar today and give Him your life. Give Him your all.
And if you're lost today without Christ, let me tell you something. You're missing out on that great relationship. You need Jesus Christ. Not only will you have that relationship, but you will escape the penalty of your sin and my sin, which is death. Ultimately, eternal separation from God Himself in a place called the lake of fire. Hell's as real as heaven is. The only way we escape the punishment of sin is to have someone else pay our sin debt for us. And that was Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. There he hung on Calvary, literally taking on your old self, your sinful self. And if you're saved today, you died with him. And if you're lost, you've yet to die to flesh and sin. And when you stand before God, you'll be judged for that flesh and sin. May God help you to trust Jesus Christ today, to believe that he died for you, that he was buried and he rose again, to understand that you have sinned against a holy, righteous God and that without his mercy and his grace, you have no hope of ever missing hell. You'll splash right into it when you close your eyes in death. God help us today. If we're lost to be saved by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ and the person of Jesus, and if we're saved today, May we understand what great things he's done and say, I'm going to present myself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. It's just my reasonable service. Father, we come to you.